The role of the modern-day pastor and ministry leader is changing. More and more pastors around the world today are ministry leaders who are doing multiple jobs and wearing multiple hats. They are bivocational or co-vocational leaders. They may be pastors looking for creative ways to use their church or staff to create income and revenue for sustainability. They may be ministry leaders who are looking for ways to launch for-profit initiatives or integrate innovation into their organization. They may be those who want to do missions globally and find creative ways to create sustainability. Or they may be marketplace leaders who are called to stay in the marketplace, but want to be part-time pastors, lay pastors, start ministries or nonprofits. This is the age of the new ministry leader. They wear different hats and do different things. They are technologically savvy and global. They are who God is using to make an impact in cities and communities around the world. This is the Entrepreneurial Ministry Leader Podcast, and these are their stories. Well, good morning, everyone. It is an honor for me to sit down with Brandon Petrie, President and Chairman of the Board of Together LA, and Reverend Dr. Robert Chow Romero, Professor of Chicano uh, Studies and Asian American Studies over at UCLA, and the author, which we we're just talking about, of a book called The Brown Church, which has completely changed your life and your ministry. Uh, Robert, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Hey, let me start off with a couple of questions first, and I'm going to turn it over to Brandon. Share a little bit about your own journey, and you've always been, uh, I think, a lifelong resident in L.A. Share about your ministry in L.A. and share a little bit about your journey. Absolutely. So, yeah, like I'm an SGV guy, San Gabriel Valley guy. Um, I was I was born in east side of town, raised in Hacienda Heights, and I still live in the San Gabriel Valley. Um, I never thought I'd write a book called Brown Church or be involved with ministry for that matter. Um, but when I was in law school at Berkeley, that's where Jesus radically got a hold of my life. Uh, I thought I was off to just uh, drive a Ferrari, be rich and famous, make a lot of money. And Jesus got a hold of my life in a radical way at the end of my first year in law school during final exam. <laughs> and um, everything changed. And as part of, of that transformation in Christ, um, one of the hugest things that changed was I felt God knocking on the door of my heart, knocking and sort of saying, okay, Robert, you've never asked me what I wanted to do with your life. And so I went on to a park bench across the street from the Puente Hills Mall <laughs> in 1996 and said, okay, Lord, what do you want to do with my life? And that journey, you know, led me to, you know, become an attorney, get a PhD in Latin American history, also a focus in Asian American studies. And I've been a professor at the last, at UCLA for the last um, 16 years. And I have felt that my calling is to use the professorial platform to explore issues of race and Christianity race and Christianity in many different forms. And here we are. Yeah, no, actually, you know what, Robert, and I was listening to an interview, you talk about that day in 1996, 1997, where God said to you, I want you to become a professor and use that as a platform. For you, what, what did you imagine versus what you're doing right now? <laughs> you know, it's, it's in certain ways quite similar in certain ways not like when i felt that that deep sort of uh, movement of god in my heart i was at, at a veritas forum in berkeley and i was listening to os guinness speak and 
Hoskins was it was a great talk on I don't know like a thinking person's journey to coming to know God something like that and I'd never heard I'd never heard a Christian just honestly like just speak eloquently <laughs> at intersecting <laughs> sort of the academy with Christianity and after that talk I was like it was at First Presbyterian Church in Berkeley and I was literally numb I was like oh my gosh Lord like I can see myself doing this but for me it's the intersection of race race and Christianity. And so the speaking part is about what I thought. <laughs> um, I never could have imagined podcasts back then, but you know, the webinars, the, the, all the different talks, that's about the same. I think what I couldn't have imagined was probably the way that I would write a book called Brown Church. Like I just had no real conception of that. I didn't know that there was this whole 500 year tradition of Latin American and Latina, Latino, Christian justice, and I didn't know there was Latino theology and all these kinds of things. So I never could have imagined that that part of it. So it took a lot of years, it took a lot of years for God to fill in the gaps of my knowledge. Wow, Robert, thank you. Um, I've got a couple small questions, then I want to get to the to the heart of kind of what God has called you. I I I didn't know that as you were getting your first uh, your PhD. That, that part of your studies were in Asian American studies because you're known as the the Brown Church guy. Give us a little bit of background on that. How, <laughs> sure. how do those two intersect? Well, it, they intersect in me. So <laughs> <laughs> um, my dad is an immigrant from Chihuahua, Mexico. It's in northern part of Mexico. Of Mexico. My mom is an immigrant from Hubei in central China. And um, my grandfather, Calvin Chow and Faith Chow, my grandmother on my mom's side, they were amazing servants of Jesus, and they launched intravarsity in China. My grandfather was called the Billy Graham of China by Christianity Today and all these kind of things. And so um, it's always been a part of me. Um, when it came time to kind of do my PhD, you know, you have to pick a research topic. And I had remembered that my parents had always talked about having friends, family members, or not family members, but friends who were Chinese in Mexico City, Mexico mm -hmm. City. So, so I thought, huh. What if I do a history of the Chinese in Mexico as my dissertation? And I had no idea that, that it would end up being such a great topic. And so that dissertation led me naturally into the world of Asian American studies at UCLA and beyond. And in fact, uh, that whole field of study of Asians in Latin America has really been um, pioneered by Asian American studies friends like Evelyn Hudahart, Erica Lee, and others. So. Mm -hmm. I am, in fact, I do have an appointment in Asian American studies as well, though um, I, I spend most of my time in, in Chicano Latino studies. Yeah, that's that's fantastic and, and so needed, especially in a, in, in a city like L.A. And when I think of L.A. and think about uh, someone who understands the history, loves the history, is L.A. through and through, like you said, San Gabriel Valley is up there. <laughs> uh, I think of you. You were the first person mm -hmm. who taught me about um, the red lines uh, in our home deeds and, and what that implies even today systemically within buying a home uh, here in Los Angeles. And I, I'm so thankful to call you a friend. I'm so thankful that of the work you're doing. Uh, it's it's needed, it's valuable, and um, and I'm really, really proud that you're, you're here with us. Tell us a little bit about um, Brown Church, how it came to be, what is it? Uh, it I, I want to promote it at the end of this, um, but it is so powerful. But I'd love to hear from your words, uh, your voice. Tell us a little bit about the book, Brown Church. Sure, Brennan, and, and thank you for those kind words. 
Um, so Brown Church came about after I got tenure at UCLA about eight or nine years ago. You know, I had been doing ministry for many years with my wife, Erica, and family. And we had been working with activist students at that intersection of justice and Christianity. You know, we, there's so many students who lose their faith. They come to the university and they lose their faith because they don't know how Jesus, what, what does Jesus have to do with justice and race? And does God even care about those things? Right? So we had been doing our ministry of Jesus for revolutionaries for about a decade. My wife for many years before that was an urban minister. Um, and, but that was always separate from the classroom. It was like, okay, mm-hmm. you know, and just for the record, anybody from UCLA listening, I really respect the separation of church and state. <laughs> and so in the classroom, that's a different, that's a different situation, right? But on our, in our private time, we're doing this, in our private time, we're doing this ministry with many students. And after I got tenure, I was listening to a Lauren Hill song, the MTV album, where she basically sort of, she says to the world, I'm a Christian. She says, I'm tired of leaving half of myself outside of the music door. And I said to myself, mm-hmm. I remember we, we were remodeling our kitchen at the time and I was full of drywall and everything, you know, and I was like, I'm tired of leaving half of myself outside of the academic door. Mm-hmm. And if possible, I want to be able to integrate this ministry experience as a pastor, as a community organizer, um, as an evangelist, uh, you know, with my academic scholarship in an appropriate way, in an appropriate way. And so that led me to sort of start thinking about this concept of like, what's the, what's the connection between justice and race in Latin America and amongst mm-hmm. US Latino communities? And what I found out was that there was kind of like this hidden history, this forgotten history that's 500 years <laughs> where Latin Americans and Latinos have been wrestling with justice and Jesus and, and um, colonialism and segregation <laughs> and all these things, immigration. But for 500 freaking years, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, why does nobody know that, right? It's like, you know, in Christian circles today, we tend to think that, well, maybe that's like 20 years old or something. <laughs> and so I, I kind of dove into that and found out that there is like this whole history and, and theology that's there and Brown Church is the result. Yeah, that's really good. How do you, how do you define uh, the Brown Church and, and the theology of the Brown Church? Um, and uh, I mean, you gave us the inspiration for writing the book, but 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 give us a little background on the theology of it. Sure. Uh, since I'm a historian and a storyteller, I'll I'll tell the story of how it's how the Brown Church started. Yeah, yeah. And then go from there. I think it'll make sense. So, you know the story. Christopher Columbus. He's sailing around looking for a new route to India for trade. He's from from um, um Genoa, but he's sailing for Spain. Right? He gets lost. He gets lost in what is now the Dominican Republic and Haiti and the Bahamas and Cuba, right? That's where he that's where his ship kind of got lost, right? And he thought he was in India. That's why he called it the Indies. He said, oh, I'm in the Indies, right? And um, for the next 20 years, the Spanish began the first European colonization of the Americas, right? The first sort of saying, hey, you know, God has appointed us as, as Europeans, as Spaniards, share with you about Jesus. And in the process, we're going to enslave you. We're going to take your land and this belongs to us. It's, it's sad, but true, right? And mm-hmm. by, by 1511, so 1492 to 1511, the indigenous population, and this is where the story gets very sad, um, was decimated, right? Mm-hmm. Those islands at one time, they were the home of 
you know, at least a million people, maybe more, you know, depending upon the numbers you look at. And that colonization, you know, led slavery, led to disease, it led to all this terrible stuff. And so in 1511, there was a Dominican priest. And, and 1511, so just, to, you know, just for the, for the timeline, that's eight years before Luther, right? Nailing his famous thesis, 1511. This priest called Montesinos, he sends out, he and the Dominicans send out this important, today would be like an email, right? Saying, I, we want all the important Spaniards of the island, all the elite people, come to this important church service. Mm-hmm. And word got out to the governor, to all the landed people, to everybody, right? Montes- and so that Sunday, Montesino gets up in a, in a picture, like this big straw hut, that's a church, all these elite Spaniards. And he starts quoting from John the Baptist and Isaiah, and he says, listen very closely to what I'm about to tell you. I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And he said, Spaniards, God gave you the chance to share about Christ with love to all of these beautiful indigenous peoples and communities, but instead you've exploited it as an opportunity for selfish gain. And look at the consequences. And he said, and he said if you don't repent, God's going to send you to hell and, and remove God's blessing from, from Spain and all of its people. Right? He, that was the first social justice, racial justice sermon in history. <laughs> in history. It happened in 1511, right? And beginning in 1511 and later with people like, like Las Casas, Portolome de Las Casas, Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz and others, um, there began this re- biblical reflection upon um, justice and race. And from a, from, a, from a sort of philosophical perspective, what the Spaniards did was, some of them, because there was a big debate in Spain called the Great Debate, this big controversy about whether or not the colonization was right or not. Mm-hmm. You had people like Las Casas, who um, they, they developed the initial theology, right, of justice, right, and race, you know, and God's heart for, for those justice issues. But on the other side, you had people who were trying to develop counter theologies, right? Um, I don't know, think like QAnon or something. <laughs> <laughs> and what they did was they, they, they drew from, you know, think about it's time of sort of like scholasticism and all that kind of stuff. And so they, they cared a lot about Aristotle and Aristotle had this concept of natural slaves, right? And Aristotle didn't really think about it in what we would call, in what we would call a racial context, but he thought about it in terms of like in any given population, Aristotle said you have what are called natural slaves, which is a horrible concept, right? If he defined natural slaves as people who um, were good with their hands, not good with thinking, you know, and in his horrible thinking, he said that, you know, in any given population, natural slaves, what the proponents of colonization did was they said, anyone with brown skin is a natural slave. They, and and they're, they, thereby they created race in America, in the Americas. They created it. They created the first categories of of Indian, which was a racial category, um, and they and and they called themselves Spaniards, right? That became a racial category beyond just an ethnic marker, and that's an example. And, and so Las Casas said, "No, these diverse indigenous peoples." And he wrote this in, in hundreds and hundreds of pages of text. Mm-hmm. He said, "Indigenous peoples are made in the image of God, and Christ died for them as much as He did for the Spaniards. And what right do you have to exploit them in, in this way?" Right? And so I talk about like brown theology is this tradition of, of, of theological reflection about justice, right, in Latin America. And that has continued throughout the centuries. It's 
um, Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz developed the first sort of like um, kind of what we would call like <laughs> Christian biblical equality theology, right? Um, back in the 1600s, you had people like Cesar Chavez, you had people like Oscar Romero, right? In, in, in Central America, you had the development of, of specifically Latino, Latina US theology and on and on and on. So I, I, I sort of um, just crafted that framework to say, all that justice theology from Latin America and, and US Latinos, that's brown theology, that's brown theology. And this whole 500 year history of justice is the brown church. So brown church mm -hmm. is not synonymous with the Latino church in general, but brown church is specifically like, how has the Latino church um, labored with Jesus around issues of justice right, for 500 years? I will say also that at the same time that brown is, is a metaphor. Brown is a metaphor because as Latinos and Latinas we come in all colors and, and hair color and eye color. And, you know, some people are, some of my cousins look like they came from Ireland. You know, some of my cousins look like they came from India, right? We have all different, you know, we, there's these diverse, beautiful indigenous communities that have been there here for thousands of years. There's people of Spanish descent, there's Asian Latinos, there's Jewish Latinos, there are all kinds of Latinos, right? But brown is a metaphor for all of that beautiful diversity that is, that is within our Latin American people. And secondly, um, brown is a metaphor for racial liminality, racial liminality, for the racial in-betweenness that we as Latinos in all of our diversity feel in the United States context, right? In between black and white. Let me give you an example and then I'll, I'll, I'll just stop for more reflection. But recently, Biden, President Biden, he said, I'm gonna reopen the White House sort of office of like, you know, faith-based initiatives. He said, I'm gonna reopen this, right? Which I, I'm happy about, right? And I believe that Jesus is not a Republican or a Democrat. So just to clarify, I'm an independent, just for the record. <laughs> Um, but, and, and he said, as part of his announcement, he said, and I'm going to announce that we're going to have this liaison to the black church for these initiatives, an official liaison, right, for these faith-based initiatives um, and the black church. And I'm so happy for that. I'm so glad that there is a, a liaison, right, to the black church. But as Latinos, guess what? <laughs> he didn't announce any liaison to the Latino community, even though we are... <laughs> We're the, by far the, the fastest rising, you know, ethnic church group, Catholic, Protestant, you name it, in the United States. But they didn't, they didn't tend to even think about it. Right? That's an example of that liminality. And finally, I'll say, anyone can be brown. At the end of the day, it's not an ethnic marker, but it's for anyone who feels in between. So, so if I have friends who have said, oh, you know, hey, Robert, I'm South Asian. Can I be part of the brown church? Yes, welcome. <laughs> Anybody can. Anybody can, because Jesus was brown in that sense too. But that's another, that's another sort of uh, little rabbit trail. <laughs> well, for those of you who are listening, the professor is in the building. Uh, <laughs> that is a great intro um, into a much, much deeper and longer conversation. I've got, I've got a couple more questions for you, and let's interact with this if we can. Um, folks like Thomas Sowell who wrote a book called uh, Black Rednecks and White Liberals. And another guy, uh, Grady McWeeny, uh, wrote Cracker Culture. We're looking at race coming into America through that lens of the Celtic uh, Scottish Highlands. And we typically think of, of slavery and, and racism in America, mostly black, white. Um, Latino uh, folks um, ha have, have 
and I'll use this very, very gingerly, been marginalized in that conversation. And as you alluded to in the, in the, in, in the way in which Columbus comes over and, and goes through Haiti and the Dominican Republic, and then it kind of moves through, there still is some of that systemic understanding that we're, that the Latino church is, is behind the scenes or lesser than. Can you interact with that just a little bit and, and tell us what, what you might see um, the Latino church, uh, the voice of the Latino church, especially here in LA? Yeah. So, um, I think there are very specific reasons why the Latino voice is, is sort of not centered, even though you know we've been around for actually like, I mean, for 500 years, <laughs> longer than the pilgrims, right? Um, and it's because it's the way in which the La we as, as the, and I, I'm kind of using the term anachronistically because they didn't say this in 1850, but the way in which we as, as a Latin American descent people were incorporated into the United States. Um, the, through the U.S.-Mexico War and Manifest Destiny, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, in 1848 to 1850, there was something called the U.S.-Mexico War, right? At that time, Mexico was twice as big as it is now, included California, Arizona, New Mexico, before that, Texas, right? A huge swath of the United States. And before that, you know, Florida was part of the Spanish Empire. So, like, um, but as part of the U.S.-Mexico War, um, there was this theological concept called manifest destiny. And it was kind of like MAGA now, I'm gonna be very direct, right? Mm -hmm. And it said that um, the Anglo Protestant peoples that are from the New England states possess a God-given manifest destiny to conquer North America from coast to coast in order to spread Protestant Christianity and in order to spread American democracy. And it came specifically from this lens of that Mexican American descent people, Latino descent people, if you will, are culturally inferior. They're the natural slaves, right? And that Native Americans are even, according to their racial ideology, even lower, right? So when the US took over all those territories and incorporated the first, what we would call Latinos, it did so very reluctantly for the land. And it explicitly denied legal rights, political rights, socioeconomic rights. Um, it excluded Latinos from um, the, the major denominational leadership. You know, maybe, you know, come to our churches, maybe, but probably if you, even if you come sit in the back doors, right? And then I'll say this, let me, to, that, that, so that was like, I mean, talk about like a messy beginning, right? Talk about to, to jump to California, right? Um, there is a professor by the name of, 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 of Dochuk from, from um, uh, Notre, Dame, Notre Dame. And he talks about how, he talks about the, the southernization of California, the southernization of California. Mm -hmm. Maybe if you and your listeners have heard about that. He talks about how like about a hundred years ago, there was this influx of you know, millions of people from the South. Right? Right? And they viewed California as like this blank slate mission field. They didn't think anything good was here already, right? They said, in their own way, they had a 20, 20th century manifest destiny. God has given us the manifest destiny, right? To convert all these Mexicans and Italians and Chinese Americans and Japanese and pagan Hollywood people. And they came in and began missions with that mindset of like, you know, it's not just Latinos, but we're focusing on for right now, 
that Latinos, in order to come to know Jesus, they also had to become Americanized, right? Because they're culturally inferior. So there was, there was this process that went hand in hand with the missionization of California that was called Americanization. And they would literally develop Americanization programs hand in hand with the US government to assimilate Mexicans, Italians, Japanese, anybody that was not Anglo, right? And so that was the beginning of this sort of, yeah, just viewing the Latino population for hundreds of years as only this culturally culturally deficient people. And, and that's what those redlining maps we talked about, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's the exact, that, that's the lens, right? And so, you know, and as I, so as, as I share that history and talk with, with many thousands and thousands of Latino people over the past year, they say, we're not just your mission field. We're not just your mission field. We have so much to offer the body of Christ. Amen. We, we are God's children too. Give us a chance. Well, actually, no, don't give us a chance. We're not begging. We, <laughs> right. We're one of the tribes. Whether you like it or not, this is what we have to offer. And here's our voice. Here's yeah. our voice. Yeah. yeah. Our perspective. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> Taking that and moving that into uh, 2021, uh, pandemic aside, how do you see LA interacting with the Brown Church? How do you see the Brown Church interacting with issues like um, like another organization that you work with, Matthew 25, right? Um, um, uh, a hotbed topic in the previous administration was border control, right? Uh, we experienced that in LA uh, deeply, um, both um, on a daily basis. And folks are divided on those kinds of issues. As, as you move the Brown Church, uh, not move, but as the Brown Church engages, um, in LA in, the, in 2021 and beyond, what do you, what do you see? What, what, what are our, what are the, what are the takeaways? So first of all, um, immigration has never, just, has never been just about immigration. So that's right. So that's right. Our, our immigration laws, and, and this is just objective history, which is, you know, another conversation about this, but immigration has, have always laws from the, from the time they started by excluding all Chinese immigrants in 1882, all Asian immigrants by early 1900s, by excluding um, Jewish, Italian, Greek, Polish Im immigrants, right? Um, the birth of our immigration laws was always about regulating what does it mean to be American and who is American, who's worthy, right? It's never been about, okay, just immigration laws. It's never been that. Right. It's never been just right. that, right? Now, so the last four years of immigration stuff, has brought that to light. All Mexicans are rapists and criminals and blah, 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 blah. In other words, Latinos are not worthy of being full members of the American polity, right? Mm -hmm. So first of all, there has to be a proper understanding of that. It's, it's always usually been about, okay, we'll accept Jewish immigrants or Mexican immigrants or Italian immigrants for their cheap labor, Chinese immigrants for their cheap labor. Then when economic times get hard, we'll kick them out and scapegoat them because at the end of the day, they're not real Americans. So that's the proper context. That's just, I challenge anybody, anybody look at the history, that's exactly what you'll find, right? That's right. Stated, stated quite directly. And that being said, where are we right now, right, in 2021? Right now, at this moment, we're at a place where many Central American immigrants are fleeing um, violence and they're fleeing hunger and they're fleeing all these different things like, like Jesus and his, family when they fled to Egypt, right? And many people are asking the wrong question. Many people are saying, like, what would have happened if, if Jesus and his family came to Egypt 
And they said, Jesus, Joseph, and Mary, you're illegal. Go back. Right? The question to ask would be, Jesus, Joseph, and Mary. And, and I was thinking about this actually last night as I couldn't sleep because of the time change. There were, I surmise, there were, I'm sure there were other Jewish families that fled Bethlehem also from Herod's decree. I'm sure they didn't just sit there and say, okay, Herod, kill all my babies. There was probably other migration, right? I don't know where they went. Some probably went to Egypt too. I don't think it was just Jesus, right? Maybe there was a caravan. There probably was actually, right? Um, people were like, we're fleeing violence, right? But the Egyptians, the Egyptians could have said, Jesus, where are your papers? You're illegal, right? But instead, you know, at least, and this is a deeper historical question, right? There was the welcoming of the Holy Family, right? And we have the biblical record to show us why they were fleeing. And I think that in the same way with, with Central American um, um, mass migration now, we should be asking, why are people fleeing? Yeah. What are they fleeing, right? What's, what's a sense of biblical compassion to that? Now, that being said, I think there needs to, it's fine, it's legitimate to have order at the border. We need orderly processes, and we need to address the root causes in Central America. And, and something that, we'll, that most Americans don't realize is that, guess who, guess who contributed to those root causes? Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. that, that's another interview. Which is another <laughs> interview, right? So it's complicated, right? It's not as easy as illegal or not illegal or not legal or this and that. It's like, it's complicated, right? And I think as Christians, at least, we are called to, 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 to examine the situation holistically, comprehensively, wisely, through the lens of biblical hospitality. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, what you're what you're saying is not is not um, uh, is not radical at all, unless you're a Christian. It's radical as a Christian to think this way, and I love that. I love that. Yeah. Amen. Hey, Robert. A couple of questions as we wrap up. One of the things that I loved hearing your perspective of that I learned is you mentioned in a previous interview there is little connection between Latinos and justice in the Bible. If you are a Latino who is passionate about justice, you actually sometimes don't know where you fit in inside the church. Talk about that. Sure. So just as the U.S. has its own historical racialized system, right, that puts certain people on top and certain people at the bottom, in Latin America, we have our exact same thing. In fact, we invented it, sadly. Right? It's a dubious distinction, right? Ours is called Spanish on top, Portuguese on the top, indigenous at the bottom, African at the bottom, mestizo in the middle, mulatto in the middle, right? So when, when our Latin American families come to the US, depending upon where they came from in the socioeconomic structure in our countries of origin, we bring that. And many of our, of our, of our Latin American families bring a sense of whiteness anyways, like my family's that way. Came from Chihuahua, Mexico, they were of that sort of historical elite class. Um, and then, then they, they come and then they, it's very easy to, it's one step from that to MAGA <laughs> to say, oh yeah, we were the elites in Mexico. Yeah, we should be the elites here too. We don't like those immigrants from blah, 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 blah either, right? And that translates into a perfect fit, sadly, in all the wrong ways with American evangelicalism as a political identity. Now, I'm evangelical theologically in terms of, you know, the, um, you know, the core tenets of the historic Christian faith, right? Um, Christ and our salvation, all those things. I am a thousand and percent evangelical in that sense. But as Sung Chong Ra has said, evangelical identity today is primarily a political identity. It's not a primarily a theological identity, right? And so it's very easy in all the wrong ways 
for many Latino immigrant pastors and families and churches to embrace that political side of things, right? As evangelical, as opposed to theolo the, the, the theological. And so there are millions of young people who are like, they see all this crazy injustice in the US happening over the last four years, but they see, they find their parents or whatever endorsing the status quo, right? And they're like, how can I follow Jesus, right? And care about justice when even my own family members are supporting the caging of kids at the border, right? Um, and th that's that's a huge problem. And one of the things I'll say is lastly, is that that's why when, when you want, the greatest joy that I find is when young people write me, 30 years old, 25 years old or whatever, never met them, but from another part of the country. And they say, I was up all night reading Brown Church. I couldn't stop crying because I finally have a home. Mm. finally know that I belong. Yeah. Amen. And I, but with that said is you do share a story that I really would love for you to share. And I'll have Brandon wrap up is about a student of yours who was a PK of a pastor in the Midwest who really struggled with that. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. So last spring, I taught a class on the Brown Church, an undergrad class um, at UCLA. And Again, for the record, I taught it appropriately for a public university, but I taught the history. And and this this young Latino kid wrote me. He's the he's the son of of a of a pastor in the Midwest, right? A denomination that you would know, you'd all know. And um, <clears throat> he wrote me, and he said, "I grew up in the in the in the church in this particular denomination that you would all know." I wanted to believe in Jesus, right? I wanted to believe what my parents taught me, but I was called wetback, beaner, spick by my white peers. And my white peers, they accepted me and my family insofar as we were part of their denomination, but they did not accept my father. They did not accept his undocumented status. And so he said from the bottom of his heart, I wanna believe, I wanna keep believing in what my parents taught me, but I don't know how to paraphrase. And, and, and that's the quandary, the spiritual quandary, the emotional quandary that millions of young Latinos, Latinos find themselves in. Mm -hmm. Well, Robert, we have, um, I feel like this needs to be part one of five uh, interviews, not just two. Uh, you know, you are a wonderful and even prophetic voice in Los Angeles for us. Mm -hmm. uh, an incredible, like I said, professor of history um, to our community, much needed, and and a leader for this next step that we hope to take. And as we think about in Together LA, how do we love the city? Your your ethos, your your mission is all about loving the city, um, and 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 through the lens of not only the Brown Church but the church as a whole. And how do we do that? And so you're calling us to repentance. You're calling us to to community. And I couldn't be more thankful for you. So thanks for that. Um, and I, I do hope that we can get you on again because there's there's a whole bunch of rabbit trails I would love to run down. Uh, the, spending time with you is is one of my highlights of of any 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 day. Um, Brown Church, uh, you can find it on Amazon. Um, and uh, for the first, um, Tommy, if it's okay, I'm going to leap out on this. But for the first 50 folks who want to email in, we'll send you that book. Um, if you want, if you don't have a copy, if you uh, if you want to find it on Amazon, you can. If you want to email us um, at info at 
togetherla.net. We will uh, we will send you a copy of Robert's book, and uh, as long as you promise to read it, it'll change your life. So, Robert, thanks so much uh, for being with us. Tommy, do you have any more information on Together LA? Go to togetherla.net. Find us on Instagram at together underscore LA on Instagram. So, Robert, Brandon, thank you so much for making time out, everyone. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you, Brandon. Thanks. Blessings. Thanks. Blessings to you. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of the Grow Center's Entrepreneurial Ministry Leader Podcast. To stay connected, make sure you subscribe to the Grow Center channel, rate and review this episode, and make sure to share on your social media platforms. We would love for you to follow along with the Grow Center on Instagram and Facebook at Grow Center Network and our website at www.thegrowcenter.com. See you next time.